Go in your journal, your Bible, um, your electronic device to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be reading from Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 in just a moment. Um, but this, there's a lot going on this week in our culture. It's kind of been two big drops on the internet this week that have kind of like blown up um, the cyberspace. Um, the most recent, and I've even heard some of you talking about it in little pocket conversations, is the release of Kanye West's new album, Jesus is King. Um, wow, okay. Um, a guy who used to say that he was king, that he is God, is now saying that Jesus is king. This is pretty amazing if you're tracking with it. I never thought I'd be listening to a Kanye West song on my way to church. We were doing that this morning. It was like, is this the twilight zone or is Jesus getting closer to coming back, okay? Uh, that's, what I, that's what we were thinking. Um, powerful testimony, um, I mean, of his conversion. I would encourage us not to be suspicious and to be encouraged that God is on the move and he's changing people's lives. I mean, I was li- watching Jimmy Kimmel Live this week, an interview that he had with Kanye West, and he was kind of like being a little snarky with Kanye and kind of saying, so I guess you're a Christian musician now. And he said, no, I'm a Christian everything now. I'm like, that was a good answer. So let- let's pray for our professing brother Kanye. I'm sure every pastor in the U.S. is finding a way to use a Kanye illustration in their sermons today. I guess I just did that too. Um, But that wasn't the only thing that dropped this week on the interweb. Um, Another big drop was the the final trailer for the upcoming final edition of the Star Wars saga. Um, Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, released their final trailer. And if you are a Star Wars nerd like me, we didn't name our kids after Star Wars characters, but we've named all of our dogs after Star Wars characters. Um, in fact, Vader and Padme, they had puppies and their names are Luke <laughs> and Han and Chewie and Ray. And anyway, um, so this is going to kind of be an emotional, cultural moment for a lot of us. Okay, for me. Um, Especially as, they, as we go into the theaters and we watch that final opening prologue and we see those blue words on the screen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and then watch the last of the crawling, scrolling openings giving the prologue, the backstory to that particular episode that leads into that first scene. Um, it's going to be quite a moment. But from the perspective of the writers of of, of Hebrews, the prologue that's presented to us in the first four verses of this book function in a very similar way. We have this, this imaginary scrolling of these four verses that's saying everything in these four verses that declares the surpassing greatness of Jesus is what's necessary to understand before we take a deep dive into all these particular aspects, describing how Jesus is better than everything that was promised under the Old Covenant. And so if you were with us last week, as we did an overview of the book of Hebrews, we we noticed that the big idea of the book of Hebrews as a whole is that Jesus is worthy of all of our trust and devotion to the end. And this book declares why. Why Jesus is better. Why Jesus is worthy of your trust and devotion. And why you should hang on to Jesus 
for dear life to the very end. And so what the opening prologue sequence is to each Star Wars episode, the first four verses of Hebrews is to the rest of this sermon, not my sermon, but the sermon of the book of Hebrews, which is less of a letter and more like a sermon. So with all of that in view, let's now take a look at the opening prologue of the book of Hebrews and hear the word of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to its reading and preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's hard to recognize it in our English translation, but this prologue contained in verses 1 through 4 forms just one sentence in the original language. Now, run-on sentences are no-nos in English grammar, but in the ancient text of the New Testament, a run-on sentence makes a glorious literary point that the subject at hand is so amazing it could be talked about, written about, on and on and on and on. And so the point is being made in the 72 words of the one sentence contained in verses 1 through 4, that there is no one like Jesus. And what the Father is revealing through him must be taken into account by all who have ears to hear. That's why the first whole section ends with a warning. You better listen to what Jesus is revealing to the world. I mean, go ahead and look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay close attention to what we've heard. So what we have in essence is one glorious thought, run-on sentence that expounds and expands the main clause of verse 2. He, that is God the Father, has spoken to us by his Son. God is speaking to us through his Son. And what he has to say through him is of the utmost importance. So we better listen to what he's saying. So we want to consider two thoughts this morning from the prologue. We're actually going to be in the prologue. Let me give you a heads up. We're going to be in the prologue for a little while. We do, not want to, we do not want to rush on past these opening four verses because they are essential. In fact, they are a summary of everything that's going to be expounded and boasted in about Jesus Christ. So we want to get our hands on the handles that are provided for us in this prologue and then go from there. So what are the first two thoughts we want to see here in verses 2, 3, and 4? We, we want to see first that Jesus is the revelator of everything God wants to say. Jesus 
is the revelator. I asked my wife if that's a real word. She said, yes. I said, I'm going with it. Jesus is the revelator. The author's explaining God is not silent. He is speaking to us today. That's what the author is exclaiming. And in fact, he's saying he's always been speaking. That's the claim of verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You hear what he's saying? God spoke in the past to the people of God through the prophets at many times and in many ways. In other words, God has always been speaking. He's a revealer. He communicates. He doesn't keep things to himself. And so what's implied here in verse 1 is that the Old Testament writings are a record of God's commitment to generously communicate who he is and what are his plans to his people. And so as we consider what verse 1 is referencing back to, it's reminding us that God, over time, has spoken through multiple mouthpieces. He has spoken through prophets like Moses, priests like Samuel, kings like David, and multiple angelic messengers. He not only, he's not only spoken through multiple mouthpieces, he's also spoken through multiple media. He's spoken through dreams and through visions and through epiphanies. He's used symbols and ceremonies and sacrifices and festivals. God is constantly revealing to his people what he wants them to hear, what he wants them to know. So God has been progressively, the writer of Hebrews is exclaiming, He's been progressively revealing himself from Adam and Genesis to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And all of this revelation has been building, moving, culminating in what God would ultimately say to his people through his son. And so in verse 2, we find our first contrast in the book of Hebrews. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through or by his son. So this is the first, as I said, of many contrasts in the book of Hebrews. God spoke this way in the past, but now he is speaking to us this way. And it's important to know that as we work through these contrasts in the book of Hebrews, there are many of them. The point of the contrast isn't to say that this was bad, now this is good. No, it's this was good and this is better. So what God had revealed previously was good. It was clear but it was all a preparation for revealing what would be better, how all of that would ultimately point to what God wants to say through his son. It's important to note also that what God is communicating through his son does not replace what he communicated in the past. It does not change what he has said in the past. It only explains and fulfills to a greater degree what he has said in the past. Jesus doesn't replace what God said in the past through the prophets. Jesus isn't something different than what God said in the past through the prophets. Rather, Jesus is the fulfillment of what God has said in the past through the prophets. Notice the words, last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That phrase, last days, is a phrase in the Old Testament that was used to describe a coming day when the words of the prophets would be fulfilled. 
For example, in Isaiah 2.2, Daniel 10.14, Hosea 3.5, Micah 4.1, we read these words, it shall come to pass in the latter days. It shall come to pass. Prophecy will be fulfilled in the latter days. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the latter days are here. And what was said in the past has been fulfilled in the present through Jesus. So the last days are understood to be the days of fulfillment when God brings all of his promises of judgment and salvation to pass. So what we're being told here by the writer of Hebrews is that in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the author sees what was spoken of in the past as being fulfilled in a final and decisive revelation by the Son of God. So everything, everything God was saying in the past was leading up to what God would finally say through his son. Everything that God was saying in the past was leading up to what God would finally say to the world through the ascending of his son Jesus, who would live and die and rise and be exalted and return for the restoration of all things. And we know that sin has left us and the world cursed and broken and a fragment of what we were made to be, what it was made to be, but through the sending of the Son, there is going to be a great restoration. And so it's been promised in many time, at many times and in many ways that this Redeemer would come. And what, the, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he has come. And everything you need to know and everything you need to hear can be summed up in what's said in him. All the written word of God now finds its fulfillment in the living word of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So all the pieces of God's revelation come together in Jesus. Jesus helps us put our Bible together. Jesus helps us understand all that God has been saying, as we would put it, cover to cover. Jesus himself makes this point in the Gospel of Luke in teaching two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He meets with them and he says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but what it means in relationship to what's being said here in the first, in the opening prologue of Hebrews is that everything God said in the past finds its fulfillment and final revelation in the person of Jesus Christ. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus was not this shrouded, mysterious, unexpected figure that just burst upon the scene in the early first century out of nowhere. No, everything that God had been saying, communicating, has been leading to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now that he's come, it's clear that what God has been talking about the whole time can be explained and understood in light of him. 
So what's the point of this opening statement of the book, that Jesus is the final word from God, the revelator? Well, I think it's twofold. First, God wants us to know that he's not silent. God speaks. God has something to say. God has something to say to us. God does not want us to be in the dark. God wants us to know who he is. God does not want us to be in the dark about who we are. God doesn't want us to be in the dark about how we can be and must be related to him. God does not want us to be in the dark about what went wrong in this fallen world. God does not want us to be in the dark about what can make what's wrong right. God wants us to know how we can be at peace with him and his world and one another. He wants us to know. So what has he done? In love, he's told us. In mercy, he's revealed to us. God does not want a single living human being to be ignorant of who he is and what he does for those who've walked away from him in rebellion and how he'll have them back in mercy and how Jesus is the key to understanding it all. God wants us to know him. And so he's spoken. And so the opening of this book is a call to listen to what he said, to see what he's revealed and giving us a warning, as we'll eventually get to in chapter 2, verse 1. Don't neglect to pay attention. So first, God wants us to know that he's not silent. He's a revealer. He's a communicator. You know, this, this, this is a punch in the gut to agnosticism. You know, the agnostics are, are not like the atheists. The atheists would say, there is no God. The agnostics would say, well... There probably is a God, but he can't be known. Can't be understood. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, you, you certainly can't be an atheist. He, God exists. And you certainly can't be agnostic. He has spoken. He is talking. The heavens are declaring his glory, general revelation. The world is pointing us to the existence of God and his desire for us to be near him and his desire for us to reflect him. But then his word, he's communicated over and over and over again what he's like and what we're like and how we need him and how we've, we've, there's been a breach in the relationship. And there's only one way to make that relationship right. He's given us Jesus, his son, to be the ultimate peacemaker between God and man. So he's talking. He's speaking. And in Jesus, he has finally spoken. The second thing I think you need to know from this is you don't need to wonder where you need to go to hear from him. You don't need to venture off on some spiritual journey to find the voice of God. You don't need to go on a spiritual pilgrimage. Now, if you want to spend a year of your life driving around the country in a van acting like a hipster, go ahead and do that, okay? But don't do it because you're trying to find the voice of God. Do it because you're trying to find your sanity. Just kidding. <laughs> All right? You don't need to go off on a, on a wander hunt. Where is God? Where is he speaking? How can I hear from him? My brothers and sisters, my friends who are not followers of Jesus yet, God has spoken, he's spoken clear, and he's revealed to us himself in his son. And he's preserved for us authoritatively. 
what we need to hear and understand about his son in the 66 books of this sacred book, the Bible. In these last days, he has spoken to us and is still speaking to us by his son. What you need to hear from God can be heard from Jesus. He's the fulfillment of everything God said in the past, and he is everything you need to hear in the present. So, with that in view, what is the Father saying to us by his Son? What is the Father revealing through the revelator, Jesus Christ? What does he want us to know about him? Well, the rest of the prologue is him doing that. I've given my Son I've revealed myself, my glory, my plans, my passion for my people through him. Now, you want to know what I'm trying to say to you? Here he is. I remember, you know, when each one of our kids were born, I'm in the hospital. Um, When people would come to visit, I kind of felt like Rafiki from The Lion King saying, look at them. Look at them. Aren't they amazing? Look at the little wrinkles and oh my word, it's amazing. This life. And in the rest of this prologue, it's like God is the God the Father saying, look at my son. Isn't he amazing? He's the radiance of my glory, the exact imprint of my nature, and then just kind of expounds on that. Here's the way we need to look at the prologue. Do you remember there are two times in the Gospels, Gospel of Mark is what I'm thinking of, Mark 1, Mark 9, where we have this moment where the Father kind of gives his take on his son. First at his baptism, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then in Mark 9, after the transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And I feel like that's what's happening here in the prologue. The writer of Hebrews is capturing the heart of the father who's revealing his heart through his son, and he's saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's what's happening in this prologue. Look at my son. Isn't he amazing? Now listen to what I'm saying through him. And so in this prologue, we're going to kind of go through what the father is saying about his son that we need, and we need to listen up. And so with the time that I have remaining, let me just point out one more thing here in the text about what the father is showing us, revealing to us through his son, what makes him surpassing in his greatness and unlike any other and one to whom we should bend our ear and say, what are you saying to me through him? All right, I need to listen up. Here, Jesus is the possessor of everything. Jesus is not only the revelator of everything God wants us to know about him, he's also the possessor of everything, period. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, first phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things. One thing that happens a lot in Hebrews is the author quotes the Old Testament to show how it's fulfilled in Jesus. You may remember from last week's overview, there are over 35 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews and about 50 plus allusions. Allusions are when you have not a direct quote of scripture, but an idea from scripture that maps onto a very clear section of the Old Testament. That's what we have here in this phrase, an allusion. Heir of all things is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, where it was prophesied that God's son would receive an inheritance from his father. 
And so we read there, ask me, the father says to the son, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, the father is inclined to honor his son by giving him anything and everything he asks for. What's implied here is the father already owns everything. Everything belongs to the father. And as a reward, we'll see later in the book of Hebrews, as a reward for the accomplishments of his life, death, and resurrection, the father gifts the son with an inheritance. Everything that belongs to the father now belongs to the son. He is the possessor of the ends of the earth. Later on in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, this inheritance is understood to go beyond the, the, the earth. It includes the entire universe and the world that is to come. Every person, every place, every particle in the created universe belongs to Jesus. Everything belongs to him. So what makes Jesus supremely great? What makes Jesus one that we should say, okay, if you're speaking, I'm listening. Well, here's what, here, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He owns everything. Everything in the universe is his. And the implications of that are manifold. Well, here's one of them. Abraham Kuyper, the prolific Dutch Reformed theologian, who was also a politician and a writer and a pastor. I think he lived like five lives in one. (laughs) He wrote extensively on the implications of the lordship of Jesus over all things. And speaking of the extent of his ownership, he has famously written these words. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. Every square inch. Every person, every place, every dollar, pound, franc, euro, it's all his. The cattle on a thousand hill, the the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the stars of the utmost galaxy, it all belongs to to Jesus. He owns the cosmos. And you just think about how we are tempted to treat people who have a lot in this world with greater respect and to give them more attention and to give them higher priority in our list of who's who. Think of the person that you know that has the most. Maybe you have a rich uncle or someone who owns a little more. And when you're around them, isn't there a temptation to kind of be nicer, to be kinder, to give more respect? Why? Because we have this idea that people who have more demand more. Now, in our sinful hearts, we're tempted to do that in ways that are are self-ambitious and inappropriate. But here's one of the implications of this. Here is Jesus. He's not your rich uncle. He's the owner of the cosmos. Everything belongs to him. He owns it all. How do you treat someone like that with the utmost respect? 
So what's he saying to us through this reality about the son, that he's the heir of all things? Oh man, we could say so much. But let me just, let me just leave it here. If Jesus is the owner of everything, he owns you. You belong to Jesus. And so I should live like he owns me. I should want to serve to make others aware of how good it is to be under his ownership. I should want to treat the people and the place in which I am located as belonging to Jesus and wanting to steward it for his honor. I should care about the place. I should care about the structure. I should care about the politics. I should care about the culture. I should care about everything. Why? Because everything belongs to Jesus. And even though practically everything doesn't acknowledge his ownership at the present, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of it all. So the church lives in the present with an eye towards that future day where, where, where what's true theologically will be realized practically. Everything belongs to Jesus. You are a living advertisement of how good it is to belong to Jesus. He's a wonderful master. He's a responsible owner. He takes exceptional care of what belongs to him. He doesn't abuse his possessions. Things thrive under his care. We need to believe this. We need to behave like this. And we need to boast about this to others. I belong to Jesus. And that is the best news ever. This is part of what it means for him to be the heir of all things. You belong to him. This also means something important, another implication of that for you. If Jesus owns you, you don't own you. You're not an owner. Jesus is the owner. I am not the owner. Jesus is the owner. So one of the implications of this reality of what God is saying to us through his son is the heir of all things is that we need to repent of our ownership. Our hearts naturally claim ownership. My life, my money, my stuff, my time, my body, my feelings, my career. This is not what we're made for. I mean, we naturally act like the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 right? But in reality, our heart disposition should be it's his, his, his. It's all his. Paul said this in Colossians 1.16, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible, things invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. It all belongs to him. It's all for him. I had some good friends up in the northeast of the city who went through a horrific experience a couple years ago 
where they had this house that they owned and they used to live in was being put up for sale. And so they moved out of that house and they went to move somewhere else. And while that was happening, before the house was sold, a bunch of squatters came in and took possession of the house. And they wouldn't leave. And because of some legal loopholes, even the police couldn't force them out. Can you imagine the arrogance and the audacity of taking ownership of something like that that doesn't belong to you. And I just remember hearing about that story and just knowing how they were walking through that and knowing all the difficulties of the situation. I'm like, this is unbelievable. And I found myself just filled with such righteous indignation over the whole situation. It eventually all got worked out. But that's us at our ugliest moments when we are acting like we own our own lives. When we belong to Jesus. I mean, we triply belong to Jesus. Jesus owns us by creative right. He made us, and we are his. He owns us by redemptive right. He's bought us with his blood, and he owns us by inheritance. We're the reward that the Father has given to the Son for what he was willing to do through his life, death, resurrection. We are a part of the exaltation of Jesus. We're his reward. We've been given to him. And so what do we do? We turn away from our ownership. We stop acting like this is my life and my body and my job and my stuff, and we we hand it over to God. And we say, Christ, my life is in your hands. My time belongs to you. My life is yours. Right here, right now. This is the idea of surrender in the scriptures. I, all of me, all for you. You're the heir of all things. I'm yours. And the church historically has struggled with this. Even in the first century. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19 when, when anyone and everyone who followed Jesus just decided that they were going to give in to the first century sexual freedom movement. We can do whatever we want with our bodies. God will forgive us. And then Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and says, what? Literally, what? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit. You belong to God. And so there's nothing new under the sun. We struggle with this idea of ownership. We struggle with wanting to do what we want, when we want, how we want. One of the implications of the surpassing greatness of Jesus is that God is speaking to us through him, and he is saying, you are mine. And my plans for your life, my plans for your time, my plans for your possessions, my plans for your stuff, my plans for your gifts, my plans for your ability, oh, they, they are the best. Submit them to me. Where are you acting like an owner? Where are you holding on to things too tightly? Where are you acting like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings? My precious. When we hold on to things that we shouldn't hold on to, they consume us, They drive us, and they end up destroying us. 
what are you trying to act like you own when it truly belongs to Christ? Would you place it in his hand this morning? Would you believe and declare that he owns it? Would you entrust it all to the Father's will in the name of Jesus? Because that's where it belongs. And that's where it's best kept for your good and God's glory. Jesus is the revelator. God is speaking to us through him right here, right now. And one of the things he's saying to us is that he is the possessor of everything. He wants to hear you to hear it loud and clear. Everything belongs to him. You belong to him. Church, may we believe it and may we behave like it for the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in these last days, you have spoken to us through your Son. He is the great revelator. What you want us to know about you, about us, about this world, about your plan, about our brokenness, and about our hope of redemption, you have revealed to us through him. We do not need to go on a journey to find your voice. You have spoken clearly, finally, with great grace and authority through your son Jesus. We thank you for revealing your heart, your will through him. We thank you that you have revealed him to us as the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. And so I pray, Father, today you would help us with renewed surrender to give our lives over to Christ, to believe that he owns us and that our lives in his hands are the very best place for us to be. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would come Help us see what you revealed through your son. Listen to what you have to say. And may our lives be different because of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.